Turn with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You might remember a few weeks back that we had a sermon on the first part of 2 Corinthians. And this will be an ongoing thing. Every three or four weeks you'll have a sermon as the pastor's college students preach through 2 Corinthians. And I'm delighted that I get to be a part of that this morning. Let me read to you verses 12 through 22. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have, in, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. In this confidence... I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that meet with me there will be yes, yes and no, no, at the same time, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also, through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. This is the word of the Lord. Now the passage that I just read to you is a defense. It's a defense by Paul. Paul is defending himself against attack. And he actually keeps returning to this theme throughout the letter. He's defending himself against a number of accusations, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But the most obvious place in the passage we read today where he is defending himself is in verses 15 through 18 where Paul tells the Corinthians that he was not vacillating when he said he was coming to visit them. Now, why would he make a big point of talking about how he wasn't vacillating unless he was being accused of vacillating, going back and forth, saying yes and meaning no or vice versa? He's under attack. Someone has accused him and he's defending himself. He claims that's not what he does. He doesn't say yes and no at the same time. He doesn't say one thing and meaning another. He doesn't lie about what he's going to do. 
But at the same time, he told the Corinthians that he was going to be there. He said he was going to be in town, and then he never showed up. So it can be a little bit obvious to us why some might convince him of lying or of saying one thing and meaning another. So what's the deal? He says that's not what he's like, but at the same time, he didn't show up. So why didn't he show up? Well, eventually this morning, I'll answer that question, why he didn't show up. But first, we're going to talk about something completely different. Before I answer that question, I want to explain something about this passage and about this book. This discussion of Paul's intentions, what they were, why he did or didn't do anything, why he's defending himself, his defense isn't actually the main point. It's not the main point of this passage, and it's not the main point of his book, even though he keeps coming back to it. There's much more going on here and throughout the rest of the letter than Paul simply defending himself. If this was Paul just being defensive, we wouldn't be reading it. It wouldn't be in the Bible. Now, what is Paul doing that's more than defending himself? Well, to start with, He's using his defense as a good offense. We're familiar with that, right? We've heard the phrase, the best defense is a good offense. Well, Paul has an offense here, not just a defense. Everything that Paul writes, everything that he says, he has a reason for it. He's trying to convey something. He's trying to teach something. Everything Paul does is very purposefully meant to teach. So when he says that he has good reasons for what he does, that's one thing. When in our passage he actually blames them for his not coming, that's another thing. Everything he writes is focused on causing the Corinthians to grow spiritually. And that's what we're here today to do. To receive that same instruction and grow spiritually like the Corinthians. If Paul knows about sin in the midst of the Corinthians, he uses it to teach them. If he hears they're doing well, it's a teaching opportunity. If he hears that They're accusing him of being all talk, but no action. Bark, but without any bite. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, ah, forget it. I've spent too much time on them anyway. That is just another teaching opportunity to Paul. Now, Paul isn't just focused on teaching through what he says, but he's also focused in teaching and how he says it. He uses absolutely every tool at his disposal to accomplish the task to the best of his ability. He uses every bit of leverage he can to make his arguments. Recently, a bunch of college students and high school students and even some other people went climbing at Hoosier Heights. And uh, I don't know if many of you have been climbing but it's really 
fairly straightforward. I can explain it to you in one sentence. The idea is you go into a building and then you're on the floor. And you walk up to a wall and the idea is to try to go up it to the ceiling. Now, it can sound kind of pointless. So is running. I happen to find climbing more enjoyable. I, I feel like there's more of a point than running in circles until you fall down exhausted. But to each his own. It's, it's another form of exercise. Now, as you climb, after hauling your body up 40 feet, getting let down, and hauling your body up 40 feet, and getting let down, and hauling your body up 40 feet, and getting let down again, eventually you get tired just like if you were to run in circles for a long time. And when you get tired, you begin to have to get creative with your climbing. You start to have to use new techniques, new muscles, new body parts. And the point is, you're trying to get to the top, and so you're doing everything you possibly can to get to the top. This is what Paul's doing. He does absolutely everything he can. He uses every argument Every possible piece of leverage, he does. When you're climbing, normally you reach up and you grab things. After a while, you can't hold on that way anymore. So you try to grab from underneath. And when you can't do that anymore, you try to squeeze with your thumbs because your fingers won't work. And when you get really desperate, you realize that you also have elbows and knees. And maybe your chin could be used to push your way up the wall further. Anything you can do to get friction, to give yourself leverage, that's what you do. We're familiar with this, not just in climbing, that's just an example. And that's what Paul does. That's how Paul argues. He goes back and forth from one thing to another. He, uh, he anything, anything goes, anything is fair game. He gets defensive. He gets accusatory. He brings up his own suffering. He asks them to pray for him. He's very closely reasoning. And he's bombastic and off the deep end. He's tender and compassionate. And he judges. He rejoices with them and he fears for them. He tells them how he didn't take their money. He prods them to admit that they love him. None of this is done unthinkingly. It's intentional. Paul is trying to teach. And he's not just trying to teach with words. He's trying to teach with the way that he goes about teaching. So we can't assume that when Paul gets defensive, he's just being defensive. We ought to assume that actually there's a point that he's driving towards. A larger message in this book. And the reality is that that's the case. There's always a larger message in Paul's letters. And it's not just that there's always a larger message in Paul's letters. Actually, every single letter has the same larger message. 
Okay? Every letter that Paul writes is about the same thing. And if we can keep that one thing in mind as we read Paul's letters, we'll have a much better understanding of what he's trying to accomplish. Does that make sense why that would be the case? If you understood that there was always one thing that Paul was driving at, and you could just remember that one thing, you might get a lot more out of Paul's letters. So I hope you're really curious now to know what that one thing is. Is everyone curious? Everyone wants to know what that one thing is so that they can remember it and keep it in mind. Well, I'm not going to tell you. But I am going to let Peter tell you what Paul's always driving at. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 16. And here we find the key to all of Paul's letters. It starts out in verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Isn't that great? Peter tells us what every one of Paul's letters is about. Now, I know it was kind of long, so you might not have caught exactly what Peter was saying Paul's letters were about, so I'll explain it a little bit. I hope you caught it, though. Paul's letters are all about what we call today the gospel. Now, the word gospel just means good news. So when I switch back and forth between good news and gospel, you know I'm talking about the same thing. It's just Old English versus New English. Okay? And the good news is that the Lord is patient and has delayed His return so that we can repent and be saved from His coming judgment where the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. Now, we sang about this in a number of our songs this morning. And we heard the choir sing about it. This is the gospel. That we can look forward 
to that dreadful day without fear. Having come to the Lord in repentance, he then enables us to live godly lives with holy conduct, in peace, spotless and blameless. Those are the words Peter uses to describe the Christian life after having received the gospel. It's Peter describing the good news that Paul is talking about in all his letters. But then Peter ends with a warning. He says, yeah, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand, but those who distort Paul's teaching or any of the rest of the Bible do so to their own destruction. Now that's a warning to us. If we accept a distorted gospel, it will mean our destruction. Paul also sums up everything that he teaches. He uses fewer words than Peter. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's how Paul sums up the gospel. But he also has warnings for us. Similar to Peter's warning. In Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So we have these severe warnings to make sure that we don't distort the gospel, that we don't accept a different gospel from other people. Now, what does that mean for us? What it means is we better be able to distinguish between the real gospel and the distorted gospel, between the good news that Paul is teaching and the good news that is different from what Paul is teaching. If we can't distinguish between them, we have this warning. If we accept the false gospel, the good news that someone else is teaching, it differs from Paul, distorts it. We do so to our own destruction. And Peter talks about what that day will look like, that day of destruction when the earth melts, that's meant to cause us to fear. If you think about the earth melting, the elements coming apart, it's pretty intense, isn't it? And yet Peter also says, look forward to that day. As Christians, live holy and blameless lives and look forward to that day. And in our songs this morning, we had that same thing. We have not known thee as we ought, nor learned thy wisdom, grace, and power. The things of earth have filled our thought, and trifles of this passing hour. Lord, give us light 
thy truth to see, and make us wise in knowing thee. Now, what is this song driving at? It's repenting, turning away from our sin, and beginning to live a holy life. And then at the end, when shall we know thee as we ought, and fear and love and serve aright? When shall we, out of trial brought, be perfect in the land of light? When is that day? That day is the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to that day, to seeing his face and serving him there. The only way we can look forward to that day is if we have not accepted a false good news. Right? We better not have been trusting in a false gospel. A good news that's different from the one that Paul's teaching. Or that day will be a dreadful day of destruction, like Peter says. But we can't just accept the right gospel. We have to reject the false gospels. And we ought to reject it the way Paul rejects it, forcefully, repeating ourselves with strong language. We ought to learn from the way Paul teaches us how we ought to approach false gospels. And we can get sick of that, can't we? I think we get sick of that here. I know some of us get sick of that here. I've talked to you about it. We're so tired of being called to distinguish between the true gospel and the false gospel. We just get tired. And we begin to say things like, we want to hear something encouraging once in a while. Don't they know that gospel means good news? You know, good news should make you happy. Why don't they ever talk about peace? Why does it always have to be a fight? Why are they so violent in their condemnation of others? Aren't these others our brothers in Christ? And the Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. This is what we say. This is what you say. This is what I say. It's what we say in our hearts. Sometimes we say it to others. These are Christian pastors and churches. These are our brothers. Paul says if it is an angel from heaven, he's accursed if he preaches a different gospel. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's me. If it's a different gospel, let him be accursed. Now, do you think that the way Paul responds has any bearing on how we ought to respond to false gospels? I'm here to tell you it does. It does have bearing. And... 
What is Paul doing in 1 Corinthians? Well, Peter tells us what Paul does in his letters is he teaches us the real gospel. Paul makes the same claim. All I do is proclaim to you Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing but the true gospel. Now, why is that important to us this morning? Well, the reason it's important to us is because we're way off on a tangent talking about 1 Peter or 2 Peter. I don't even remember now. Talking about what Peter says, talking about how Paul talks. But we've got to get back to our passage. Well, the point is, what Paul is teaching us in our passage is the gospel, the good news. And that's important because that's how we are going to be able to distinguish between the false gospels and the true gospel. How are we going to know which is the real gospel? unless we are intimately familiar with which one is right. So we come to this passage and we carefully study what Paul says, what Paul teaches us about the gospel. And the reason we do it is the same reason that we teach people who work in banks how to recognize fake money, counterfeit, currency. And the way we do it is the same way that you teach someone to spot counterfeit currency. How do you teach somebody to recognize counterfeit money? The way you teach somebody to recognize counterfeit money is to give them real money over and over and over and over and over again. I'm sure you, some of you have heard this before. It's true. Once you handle enough real money, you'll be able to spot the fake stuff like that. That's how it is with the gospel with us. You don't even recognize that it's happening. You overwhelm someone with real money, and pretty soon they have every little detail of the bills memorized. And they don't even know it. They didn't even see that it was happening to them. That's the way we should be with the gospel. We should study it so carefully, so often, overwhelm ourselves with it, that if we saw something that wasn't the gospel, we'd recognize it like that. Submerge ourselves in the gospel to the point where we'll recognize details that we didn't even know we understood. It happens with money. You can imagine, after seeing enough of this stuff, pretty soon just the tiniest off-color in the tint is going to pop out at you, isn't it? Jump out like a deer right in front of your car. Suddenly it's obvious. It's right in front of your headlights. 
Alert! Close your eyes. You'll be able to tell whether the texture is right. Be able to see, you'll be able to feel whether it's the right thickness. You'll know just how it wears out. If a line is missing, it'll be like it's circled in red pen. That's how we spot the false gospel. We know the real McCoy inside and out. So as Paul teaches us the gospel, we study it carefully. Peter says Paul's letters are all about teaching us the gospel. Paul claims he doesn't teach anything but the gospel. And here we have one of Paul's letters, our opportunity to to examine the real McCoy. This is the true gospel that we must not reject. It's a passage that gives us real joy because it teaches us what sort of people we ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. That's what Peter's talking about. What sort of people we ought to be. How we ought to live our lives as Christians. And in particular, this passage that we're about to get way back to from our rabbit trail is about the relationship between a pastor and his church. And how the gospel impacts that relationship. What effect the gospel has on churches and pastors. On their leaders. So let's look at the passage again. Go back to the beginning, would you? To start with, Paul's using the words we and our. Now, who is he talking about? He's talking about himself and Paul and uh, Timothy and Salvanus, right? We see that later in the passage. Apparently, these are the other men who ministered to the Corinthians with Paul. And he just got done asking the Corinthians to pray for his group's safety and preservation because that way many people would be able to give thanks. And now in verse 12, he explains why many people would give thanks if he and the others with him were saved and preserved. He says they have proud confidence in the work they have done as pastors. Their conscience doesn't bother them because they have been holy and with godly sincerity have acted under God's grace rather than in fleshly wisdom. And they did it everywhere. And it says, but especially in Corinth. Why does it say especially? Because that's, they spent an especially long time there doing this. So the Corinthians, above all people, ought to know that this is what Paul and the ones, the others with him did. They saw it themselves. So that's the description of a godly pastor, a godly leader, a godly elder. Now, if I was preaching to a bunch of pastors, I'd start focusing on that description. 
and asking you if that description described you. But since most of you aren't pastors, I'm going to change it a little bit. I'm going to ask you to think about it the way the Corinthians were thinking about it. Thinking about what their relationship to their leaders was like. Are you acknowledging your own pastors as preaching and teaching and caring for you with holiness and godly sincerity? Do they proclaim fleshly wisdom to you or do they proclaim the grace of God? If you've been here more than a couple of weeks, I know you've seen that worldly wisdom is not what you're fed here. It can't be. Everything you hear from our pastors goes completely contrary to what our flesh wishes they would say. Is that wise? According to the flesh? No, it's exactly the opposite of what the flesh wants. So what's the other option? The other option is them proclaiming the true gospel. When we hear our pastors saying things that go completely contrary to what we wish they would say, is it any surprise to us that we have such strong negative reactions? Of course not. Makes perfect sense. Is it any surprise that it's such a shock to us when we first hear it? No, it's not surprising. It's exactly what we would expect. But now Paul moves on. He doesn't stop there. He moves on to say all he's teaching is what they've read in the Bible for themselves. It's all he's teaching. Not just what they've read in the Bible for themselves, but they've even understood it. Acknowledged it. And he hopes they'll continue acknowledging it. Have you understood what you read in the Bible? You have. You've seen it and you've understood it. Now, how are you going to respond when our pastors preach it? That's your option. That's where you have to make a decision. You've read it, you've seen it, you've understood it. You've even acknowledged, yeah, that's what it says. Paul keeps going. And he points out that the gospel message that they have seen and understood, they partly rejected in Paul. Are we partly rejecting 
what our leaders have told us. That's simply the gospel. Simply what we've seen and understood. Are we fighting our pastors and elders? Or are we a delight to faithful leaders not being ashamed of the work that they're called to do? And Paul instructs us to keep this understanding all the way to the day of judgment when Jesus returns. You see that? And that on that day, if we do that, our leaders will be proud to be associated with us and we will be proud to be associated with our leaders. Now, How many of you are uncomfortable by me saying that we're going to be proud? I got one honest person, (laughs) but he's in the back, so no one had to see him. Makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Being told that we should be proud of our leaders. And that if we accept what they say, that they'll be proud of us and they should be even on the day of judgment. I'm just telling you what it says. You've seen it. You ought to be able to understand it. It says they'll be proud. Now, later in this very same letter, Paul does explain it more. He says that when we boast, when we're proud, we are boasting in the Lord. In other words, these works are not works that earn salvation. In fact, it doesn't even make sense to call them works, does it? To be proud that we have godly leaders... To be proud of their work, to be proud to be associated with them, that's nothing of us. It's all about them. And as leaders, to be proud of people who have accepted and searched out just the gospel, who reject the false teachings, it's nothing of us. It's all about them. And in particular, what God has accomplished in them. And so when we boast, we're boasting in what God has accomplished. Boasting in the gifts that God gave. Faithful pastors. Discerning people. We ought to rejoice when we have those things. It's not self-pride. There's nothing of self-pride in this. It is self-pride to be easily turned away and think evil of men we know are being faithful. That's self-pride. And we do that. Men we've seen being faithful for years. Men 
who appear to be fools to the watching world, men without fleshly wisdom. This is how Paul describes himself, those with him. And it's how I describe the leaders of this church. And I boast in it. But what did the Corinthians do? Would it shock you if I said that they did the same thing that we do? Well, now we finally get to our answer. Why didn't Paul come? Well, the reason Paul didn't come is because Paul found out after he had intended to come that he had started to be attacked by those very people who he had taught faithfully. Corinthians knew Paul intended to come. Paul indeed did intend to come. And what a joy it was going to be. Paul looking forward with the others to being reunited with this church that had seen and acknowledged, understood their faithful teaching, their faithful work. This group of believers that had grown so much and been such a joy to these same leaders. How encouraging a time it would be to send them on their way in their work for the Lord. Yet when wicked men began to ask thinly veiled questions and make accusations, attacking their integrity, how quickly we turn and presume the worst. Assuming the worst of our leaders. Well, I know I've been listening to faithful teaching of the Word for the last five years. But really, it's quite believable that those men are bullies. Completely unreasonable in their discipline. That sounds just like them, doesn't it? Well, how does Paul respond? He responds, Do I say yes and no at the same time? You know me. Do our pastors and elders say yes and no at the same time? You know them. Does that sound like something that they would do? It's not. So why are we so quick to find fault with them? Why do we so easily assume the worst? We hear third hand or fourth hand from a man under church discipline about why and how he was disciplined. What do we do? Immediately. We believe every word we hear, third or fourth hand, from the man being disciplined. We're crazy. We're sinners. 
We bring it up as an excuse for us to complain about other things. Well, you know, they did do such and such. We cause division in the church. We cause it to continue when we do this. Is it any surprise that when Paul began hearing such reports, he decided not to stop in Corinth? It's not going to be such a joyful time, is it? Coming to discipline them instead of to be sent joyfully on his way. Having to return to deal with rebellion. It's nothing of the gospel when we so easily believe evil of the spiritual leaders God has placed over us. Ones we know to be teaching what we ourselves have read and understood. The plain gospel. The plain preaching of the word. How does Paul follow up his defense? He follows up his defense against this false accusation by reminding us of God's faithfulness. Saying, just as much as I am faithful, even so God is that much more faithful. He reminds them of his own faithfulness and then he says, God is truly faithful. And then you know what he does? He reminds us that the promises of God are true. And that they are answered yes in Jesus Christ. Paul reminds the Corinthians, and I remind you, that when we say amen, or that's right, when we agree with what we have heard, with the promises being proclaimed, we're stating that we believe the promises of God. We're stating that they are true and we're giving Him glory by doing that. So when we hear the proclamation, the true things being proclaimed, what do we do? What Paul says we should do is say, Amen. Paul says we should say amen in agreement and that that will be a statement of our belief and that it will give glory to God. So what are these promises? What are these gospel promises? One of the promises was that God would supply a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Do we believe it? Another promise that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that promise true? Is it yes in Christ Jesus? Is that promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus? In this passage, 
Paul gives us a promise that he has established all his own, everyone he's chosen, as sons together with Christ. And anointed us as his own. And sealed us to himself. Do we believe that God has done that work? If you believe those promises, say amen. And finally, he promised that he would send his Holy Spirit as a pledge in our hearts. What is a pledge? A pledge something you receive that's valuable that states that we will receive the rest. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit here. Do we value that pledge? Do we see the value of the Holy Spirit in our hearts? If we do, what does it mean for us? Do we believe this promise? That if we have the Holy Spirit within us, we have no need to doubt whether we are His sons? The Holy Spirit being within us testifies to the truth of the gospel and it tests, he testifies that we are sons of God. Now, do we need any other encouragement than that? That is the gospel message. The message of forgiveness of sins. Acceptance by holy God. And so what are we called to do? We're called to rejoice that God has fulfilled all his promises in Christ, that all of them are fulfilled, yes, in Jesus. Yes, he has sent his Holy Spirit. Yes, he abides in our hearts. Yes, he testifies to the truth of the gospel. Yes, we are forgiven. Yes, he was sacrificed. Yes, this is good news. It is the only good news. Let's pray.